Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. I am Michael, your captain of the USS Rainman Digital. And at the bridge with me, or on the bridge with me, is Lieutenant Junior Grade David. Hooray, I got promoted. Yeah, you're just like the lower decks crew whenever they <laughs> succeed you succeed and whenever they fail you also fail Th does this mean that i can actually not do my duties and clean up the holodecks every single time because it's starting to get really nasty down there that's fine you go ahead and do that <laughs> and i'm like ransom dressed in my deanna troy yoga attire that was so weird <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable not gonna it was lie. Uncomfortable. yeah but man i laughed though this episode, David, is a huge improvement over the last one. Yeah. It was a good mixture of comedic aspects with a substantial amount of character development for yeah. Mariner. But it did have its ridiculous over-the-top moments when Boimler is spending most of the episode looking for new quarters. <laughs> and he is cursed with either people fucking in the holodeck <laughs> or doing violence and bizarre shit in the holodeck or being placed in quarters right next to the port nacelle. That's something I never even thought about before, but that's something that could very well happen to someone. Yes. Imagine being the person in the quarters next to that bright ass nacelle light. Yes. And that would just drive you insane. <laughs> yeah. But like, Dude, they also did something very different that I'm not, I haven't seen them do in the past two seasons, which is kick off the episode from where we left off. Because like you start off from the, uh, we ended from the cliffhanger yeah, and then all of a sudden, oh, this is a continuation of that. And maybe David, that's maybe it was written as one episode and then they broke it up because my problems with the last episode was that it was so heavy on comedy mm -hmm. and didn't have any real character development. Whereas here we have a lot of character development and it does feel like the second half. Well, the weirdest thing by far is I looked, I looked back after I watched episode two mm -hmm. and episode one, episode one was all set up. It was just set up, set up, set up, set up with comedy. That's it. Yeah. And then like you get to the payoff, which is that cliffhanger. And then we continue on right from the get go, which to my knowledge, Laura Dex hasn't done. They usually have like a break where it's like, oh, here's what the Laura Dex crew do this episode. You know, it's a day of the week. Yeah. It's more serialized. It's more episode. serialized. Yeah. This was an episodic movement. And I was like going, oh, 
no, 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 no. It, got it, it was backwards. A, it, this was more serialized. Yeah. And like, I was like, oh, okay. They're trying something different now. Yeah. And I appreciated that because like, remember what we were talking about in the last episode, we wanted to see what can they bring to the table that's different. You just can't rely on just, you know, sex jokes and and uh, gross humor to carry your episode. It'll work. Do you remember when Mike McMahon said he would not be doing certain things? And you can even tell by the first season, if you watch the first season, it's far less icky with yeah. sexual jokes and innuendo. Yes, there was some innuendo. But moving to season two, they threw out the original playbook and said, fuck it. We're just going to lean into it. And for the most part, Star Trek fans have not complained. And maybe that's why. Maybe they thought because Star Trek fans, I don't want to say they're conservative because they're not, but they have a very, including myself, when I say we, I always throw myself into that. We have a very specific idea of what Star Trek should be. And even though yeah. Star Trek has always been definitely sexual, like there have been moments of, of, I guess you can say from a conservative lens, loose morals. There you go. Yeah. It's more liberal and progressive when it's uh, dealing with sex or it's view towards sex yeah. and sexuality. That's nothing new. That's been there since the 1960s. Absolutely. But when it comes to depravity. <laughs> that's a little different. So yes. I have a feeling that in season one, they weren't quite sure if it would go over well. And the little bit that they did didn't seem to offend anyone. So they said, good. <laughs> All right. Season. And in season two, if you look at it, some of the moments that made both of us uncomfortable, we were like, are you this? Th that was more reminiscent of like Rick and Morty. Well, especially season three with the, the pant, the pant droid. What was the Peter pants or. Oh yeah. 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 That was I forgot that droid that yeah that, that yeah <laughs> so they're definitely not holding back no no anymore and that's the thing is kind of like I see in similar progressions with Mike McMahon's shows because remember we've always compared Lower Decks to other other creations of his like Rick and Morty and like um oh my god I forgot the name of it the other show that me and you both liked. But any of the, uh, the the other show that he did, the type of humor he does, he brought over to Lower Decks in the following season and following in season two and season three. And then we were like going, there were those times that basically they said, oh no, that's too much. And Mike McMahon was finding his footing here in two episodes. I think he's finding his groove. He's finding his, where his boundaries are. And where he can go with his humor, which is good because if you go too far, there's a point like I've alluded to in the past episode is like sometimes your jokes aren't going to land. And if you try to do something that's very controversial or very um, jarring to your audience and you don't land the joke, it that's, makes it even worse. And in these two episodes... I see like that progression that I saw with him with like a show like Rick and Morty, where it was like the later seasons of Rick and Morty, I thought his writing was going really well. He knew his timing. He knew. Yeah. Well, he okay. also wasn't the only writer though on that show. Yes. He wasn't the showrunner necessarily. Well, no, I take that back. He was the showrunner, I believe for the third season. And then he left or he exited the series when he was hired on 
to do lower decks. Yeah. Okay, so the droid I was thinking of, or the AI, was Peanut Hamper. <laughs> yeah, the one. The, I remember when we covered that character. You hated that I, character. I thought they went a little too far. <laughs> they did, they went a little too far. So as I said, David, this episode was a stronger episode. It was directed by Megan Lloyd and written by Aaron Bur- Burdett. Yeah, stronger episode, doing things a bit more original, which is always going to be the strengths when it, at least for me, that's always going to be those, those moments I talk about. A show like this is written. I forgot my train of thought. <laughs> you forgot your train of thought? I could hear it in your voice. I'm going, I don't know where you want to go with this. Um, a show like this is written in a unique space. Yeah. Typically. And when the writers want to, they can explore some really cool aspects of the Trek world that otherwise is either outdated for today's audiences, bizarre enough that yes. it works within Star Trek uh, Lower Decks itself, while also exploring relevant and pertinent, pertinent character-defining stories. And this was one of those episodes. Mm-hmm. This was everything that I like about Lower Decks as opposed to the last episode, which is kind of everything I dislike. This was a great mixture of the funny with the relevant and it worked in an original space. It didn't just go back to what we've seen before, similar settings and scenarios. This was more unique. Yes, you're dealing with a menagerie. We've seen certain things like this collectors, humans that are actually at the center of all of the atrocities. atrocities yeah. Th- these are things where we are familiar with. These are tropes of Star Trek. Tropes are different than originality. Lower Decks takes those tropes in an episode like this and owns it. It makes it their own. Mariner was the highlight of this episode. The yeah, strength yeah, of this right. episode was mm-hmm. without a doubt Mariner's insecurities that they brought to the forefront and and and, anxi- and anxieties that constantly get in our way, and it's and the thing I like too, it's different anxieties. Is that's what I was it's, about to say. It wasn't. It's not about like it's not repeating. It's not repeating seen. what we've seen before from the past seasons. Because if they were to repeat her anxieties, I would understand if you were to use that trope. Well, she's still having to get over it. And anxieties don't leave you, of course. Yeah, this is not them backtracking on this character is not development, and they. Instead, did a really good job of basically showing us another anxiety of Mariners. You know, another insecurity, if you will. Because although this was similar territory, David, right, as you were alluding to, we Mm -hmm. have seen Mariner deal with similar things. And of course, that's going to be the case because you're dealing with the same person. But whether or not we de-evolve a character's development, that becomes the the source of of whether or not the deciding factor of whether or not what they're doing with this character is either a pro or a con yeah and what they did with it and expanding and further of the furthering of of mariner's problems and or issues is what makes this episode feel consistent with everything we know of mariner so far mm-hmm. we'll also moving into unfamiliar territory because at first it does feel like they were reversing Mariner's growth, but it ended up being less about her messing things up for herself because of responsibilities she doesn't want. 
and it was something deeper. And Ransom was at the center of, of that. all people. It was about her own disappointment and Ransom seemingly not having faith in her. Yes. And not being on her side and wanting her to fail. So that was the catalyst for her spiral into anxiety and her issues of insecurity. Yeah. And that's the, the that in itself took not just the growth of Mariner, but also the relationship between her and Ransom. Because yeah. up to this point, the relationship that they've portrayed throughout the entire seasons of of Lower Decks is Ransom is basically was assigned as her let's her higher ranking officer that watches over. Yeah, they had a terminology for something about pairing certain ensigns up with officers. Officers, yeah. Yeah. And like we knew from the get-go when this first got introduced, oh, Mariner doesn't like this because she wants to be an independent person. She doesn't like following orders, so she's going to butt heads with Ransom. And in this episode... It wasn't about that. It wasn't about that, yeah. even though they almost they, they allude to it. It felt like it was going in that yeah. direction. And then suddenly you get to the... You get to the what I would feel is like the narrative twist in the whole mm-hmm. thing and saying, no, she's still she still remembers all the growth that she's had with ransom. Now that anxiety has turned into something else. And it, uh, I, I like sat there and I was like, going, Oh my God, this is how true anxiety works. That's what I appreciated about this growth. You because, obsess on, on something. Yeah. You, yeah. and your obsession, just because you get rid of the one obsession, it just turns into something else. Usually self doubt, self doubt, You ov- overly yeah. critical of yourself. You're analyzing everything you say and do. Mm-hmm. Y- you are right, Dave. It absolutely is a pretty fair picture. The way they framed the issues of anxiety and using it to further Mariner's growth as a character. I, I, I did like what they did quite a bit, especially how, as you mentioned, or you called it like a twist. You know, it's actually the opposite of what Mariner had expected. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting way to write this episode because it wasn't just about Mariner. It was also about Ransom because Ransom was talking to Shax, not about hoping to manipulate her right out of Starfleet. Starfleet. It was about him refusing to let herself sabotage because he's well aware of what she ends up doing. Yes. He actually was intent on not letting her self-sabotage. Yeah, because in a way, it wasn't like Ransom was doing it out of spite. No, he's doing it to help her. He's doing it to I'm not going to let you do what you normally do to yourself. You, you don't allow yourself to become promoted or progress as a Starfleet officer because of your own insecurities. I'm not going to let that happen this time. Yeah. And like all of a sudden their whole relationship changed from being like one of butting heads. Mm -hmm. But now you see it as kind of like, okay, there is a kernel of truth of what ransom is saying. For the past couple of seasons, yes, we've seen this growth of Mariner turning into something that she w- is the polar opposite of since day one. And what makes it even better, Dave, is Mariner and Ransom have always been loosely connected, narratively speaking. Yeah. And that's the thing that that was really smart, too, because Ransom doesn't know, doesn't fully know about all the changes that Mariner's going through. Mariner's keeping it to herself. And in a lot of ways, that in itself is where Mariner's mistake is where she's not being communicative with 
obviously the person that's above her and, you know, going to him in, in a way show, to show that, Hey, I am changing. I'm not the person you think I am from many years from uh, probably at this point, probably two years ago yeah. in, in their time frame. But also coming to understand Ransom's looking at her going, I've known you for a while. Two years is not going to change my mind on you because you're not about you, yeah. about you yet. Yeah. So I thought that was actually really cool because in a weird sort of way, they could have actually done this type of scenario and changed and made Ransom into an utter douchebag. Right. Well, we've already seen that. You yeah. know, we've already seen that. And like I said at the top of the episode, you know, give us something new. Give us something new. Keep yeah. Ransom's characterization consistent. He is a bit of a douche. I mean, he has a, a workout set in his office. <laughs> I mean, listen, to be perfectly honest, I probably would have a <laughs> I was the same say, thing. Although I don't you- know if I would do pull ups in front of people. I'd probably wait for them to leave. I'm not a braggart, but I would definitely have a my own little Gym set Although, in the you corner know made, of my office. What made me crack up about that scene too? I don't know why I pictured Jerry O'Connell doing the Dude, workout. He is Jerry O'Connell so I many know. ways. Like, he's, he's so Jerry O'Connell <laughs> so many ways. And I was like, going, man, if this was live action, this joke would have been awesome. Yeah. Seeing Jerry O'Connell do the workout. Yeah. So overall, everything we were given as it pertains to Mariner and Ransom it felt like a logical and natural progression of their characters. Oh yeah. It also served as something fresh for ransom to do. He's a character has who I I don't want to say he's, he's been sidelined, but he isn't the core cast of lower decks. No, he's a side character for the most part. He's always in an episode, but they don't always focus on him mm-hmm. and because of that as a result we don't get a lot of development for him but when you find an episode to do like they did in this episode pairing up these two characters and in essence killing two birds with one stone that's what they should do why not flesh out these characters at the same time by pairing them up and they have done this at least once or twice every season oh absolutely with ransom and with mariner oh they've even done this with like other characters this type of strategy i mean look at uh the points i think it was in season two where they actually uh combined Shax and rutherford yeah they, those were awesome episodes of character growth for those characters yeah absolutely they've done it with numerous characters throughout the last three seasons but just speaking specifically of ransom it seems to be he's continually paired with mariner, with mariner. ever since the first yeah. season that's why i said they're narratively speaking they're loosely connected in fact, I guess you can look at it as, you know, Mariners at the center of this show, right? And any time they put a character with her, they're going to flesh out that character by default. Oh, yeah. I mean, look what the, the magic they've done with Boimler. Yeah. Boimler, because he's been with Mariner for so long and Mariner has been in that narrative th- thread throughout yeah. the entire seasons, the characters that are constantly tied with her, whether it's the captain Boimler and now Ransom. Well, the lower decks crew is pretty much a given that they're going to be fleshed out the same time as Mariner through some type of, you know, writing device. But debatably, Mariner is the 
the number one on that call sheet. Oh no. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. The show is more or less about her. Yeah. Because like as much as we would like to say Boimler is our favorite. No. Well, I do like Boimler and the show is definitely about him. But the main narrative crux is centered around Mariner. Most of it's being driven by Mariner from the very beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the title of the episode was an interesting choice. It's paying tribute to one of my all-time favorite authors, Harlan Ellison, who wrote numerous episodes from the original or for the original Star Trek series. He wrote a short story called, I Have No Mouth and And I Must Scream. Yes. And the episode was titled, I Have No Bones, Yet I Must Flee. I highly recommend people to read this story it's, <laughs> it's horrific it is disturbingly philosophical it's and it, it and incredibly unique and incredibly depressing it, it's morbid <laughs> it's morbid overtly it's about a dystopian and nightmarish future where a malevolent supercomputer has gained control effectively over the world and humanity and he fucks with them yes it's not just malevolent. It's mean spirited. Mm-hmm. It's perverse. The title itself refre- reflects the despair and helplessness of the characters as they are trapped in a state of, I guess you can say eternal suffering with no way to end their torment or escape the computer's control. Yes. And the story explores themes of dehumanization, the mm-hmm. consequences of advanced technology and the cruelty of unchecked power. Mm-hmm. Now, there are superficial connections to the episode, but nothing at a deeper level. No, no, no. But as any Star Trek or hardcore Star Trek fan knows, Ellison is an important part of Star Trek history. So a show that mm-hmm. plays with the nuance of self-references, you know, it makes sense to pay tribute to a writer like Ellison. Yeah. And that's the thing is kind of like, well, the, the, the. The theme of the episode is loosely tied to the uh, title of the episode. I think the reason why they put that reference in there was because, you know, Harlan Ellison is an important figure, probably, probably a third most important figure in Star Trek. Moopsie does feel a bit like a Harlan Ellison villain. Yeah. So maybe that's the reason why. I mean, Moopsie is so fucked up. Oh, dude. Yeah, I mean, like, especially when you compare Moopsie to the, to the, to the computer in uh, the the short story you're mentioning about Moopsie is like that is that type of character that's it's, it's perverse in a way. However, Moopsie seems to be unaware of its intentions. I don't it, think it, it almost cares. feels like yeah. Like I don't care. think there's a morality to it. Yeah. I, I, it's just a creature that eats. Yeah. And whereas if you, the, the robot or the AI, the computer in Harlan Ellison's story is very much aware of what it's doing. Yeah. It's aware of what it's doing. But in a, in a lot of ways, that computer also just doesn't care. Yeah. It doesn't care about those, those creatures. It just wants to make their lives miserable. But I will say, I believe the way Moopsie, oh, it's been a while since I read the story. Uh, Harlan Ellison story, but I believe the way Moopsie kills people, mm-hmm. I think, oh, I don't want to give spoilers. There are <laughs> characters, I believe, that become blobs of flesh without yeah. 
Okay. No, no, Am no, I yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. So, because, like, so there are little notes of inspiration from directly taken from the story as well. Absolutely. Then. Because like, that's one of the things when. Dude, that's such a horrific scene. Yeah. And <laughs> oh my God. When, when it happens in, in, <laughs> in the, in the episode, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have no mouth and I must scream. And <laughs> if you, if, for people who have not yet read the, uh, the, the book, when you get to the end, don't th- spoil it. Yes. The computer does what Moopsie does. Yeah. And that's essentially what he does to people. Yeah. And it's, it is. Do, do yourself a treat listeners out there and just buy an anthology, anthology book, book from yeah. Ellison. You will love every single one of his stories. He is a bizarre dude, but super intelligent He's inspired much of my writings. I love his speculative fiction, um, but it, they aren't easy reads. They're not easy. He, yeah. he writes very lyrical, so it's not your traditional plot book like a Stephen King book. There's a lot of nuance there, so it isn't like a late night read that you're going to pull the book over from your nightstand and like, all right, I'm going to read this before I go to bed. This is something you're going to have to plan your day around. Like, all right, I'm going to sit down on Saturday at two and and read this book. And read Harlan Ellison because like I 100% agree. For me, Harlan Ellison is like, uh, my inspiration for Ellison is just like his harsh, his stories tend to be harsh truths that yeah. You don't want to accept. That's valid. And like, especially the the short story, that short story is what inspired me to become a writer because it's like to have that type of mental fortitude to actually say, here's my story and this is what I believe in. And this is what I'm saying. Yeah. And at the very end, have your audience go, yeah, he's right to some degree. And you have to remember that he was right. This is turning to a Harlan Ellison episode, but that's fine. You have to realize also that he was writing a lot of these stories Mm -hmm. in the 1950s and early sixties during a time when people didn't write stuff like this. Mm -hmm. A lot of sexuality, depravity, but not for exploitation purposes. He's usually intellectual reason behind his his stories. I don't know. I don't know if you would agree with this, but my feeling for Ellison is he is the type of writer that always wants to question human nature. You know, the more not, not human nature as instinct, but human nature as in your moral compass Yeah, and you, how you make your choices. A perfect example of it is the original Star Trek story that me and you covered that is considered the greatest Star Trek movie of all t- or mo- uh, story of all time is the uh one that the city on the edge of city forever. on the edge yeah. of forever where it doesn't end well but the whole story is a question of what would you do to your moral code yeah are you willing to go that far and just to bring it back even into deeper star trek realms here he's also the writer that was hired to write the motion picture after the studio had passed on Roddenberry's yeah. original draft and his draft, don't hate him for this. He loved to rock the boat on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's he took pride on just pissing people off. And he, I believe he's on record saying that he disliked Roddenberry and Roddenberry equally disliked him. Yes. So when he came <laughs> to write the movie, he killed Captain Kirk. Yeah. 
in the original script, he's all like, yeah, Captain Kirk, there he is. And now he's dead. Now he's dead. And the studio was like, I like that idea. And Roddenberry fought with the studio saying we cannot kill Captain Kirk. So I understand what Harlan was trying to do. I think he knew it wasn't going to get greenlit and he was purposely trying to fuck with Roddenberry. Oh, no, absolutely. Everyone, even in some memoirs, people said both are great minds when it comes to writing and storytelling, but they were so polar opposites opposites of each other that uh, what's the phrase diametrically opposed that their greatness together was fantastic, but individually they could not stand each other. <laughs> yeah, I believe Roddenberry even quit referring to him. Yes. I, in, in certain it's memoirs certain I've read when you're obvious, when it's obvious that he's talking about him, he won't even say his he name. He won't say his name. <laughs> Whereas Harlan Ellison will just say his name because yeah. he doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't give a care. <laughs> he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And like Roddenberry is the type of writer that basically says, no, I never want to talk to that uh, talk about that guy ever again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So let's bring it to our final thoughts. Moopsie was probably the best thing since Badgie. <laughs> I don't know. Dude. Uh, yeah, Badgie. Peanut, peanut Hamper probably is in the running, but uh, Moopsie. I, I want to see Moopsie again. And if they <laughs> if they make a Moopsie character, I, I want it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy a Moopsie plush toy. Can someone please make a Moopsie plush toy? Because I will purchase it. What is what is up with Lord Dex coming up with villains that we all look at? And we're like, man, they are so disgusting dude the people at paramount are dropping the ball when it comes to marketing this show when it comes to merchandise there is so much that they can make in the way of merchandise that star trek fans will eat up because there's a bunch of little clever funny things that people i would i would buy a 50 some dollar 60 some dollar moopsie Oh, yeah, yeah. I absolutely would. I'd, I'd buy a badgie and a peanut hammer well, instantly. David, they just announced during Star Trek Day that they're finally coming out with some legit, high-quality Star Trek Lower Decks statuettes and figures. <laughs> and the first round is going to be Mariner and Boimler, of course. Yes. And badgie. And they're running at, I believe, $55. You're going to have Badgie in the studio. I'm going to buy all three of them, Dave. 55 bucks, that's doable. Oh, that's doable. Yeah, yeah for- it's not like some of the, uh, what's that place called? Show? Oh, uh, sli- uh, Sideshow. So, yes. Sideshow collectibles. Yeah, Slideshow where you're, is it Sideshow? Sideshow. Sideshow where you're spending $900 or so $1,700 on, <laughs> so on certain collectibles. All right, Dave, episode is uh, damn solid. I'm going to give it an 87%. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty surprised. Me and you are on the same page with this one where I was more forgiving for the first episode, but like the second episode is much stronger. And I really enjoyed it. You, you, you introduced a fantastic villain to a whole, the, the Star Trek universe and Moopsie. <laughs> I think uh, I'm with you at 87 Okay. All right. Well, this brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.